This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies Singapore. I'm your host, Ong So Chin. Today's episode is on empathy in healthcare. The relentless onslaught of COVID-19 has created mental and emotional stress for everyone. Calls to help hotlines have gone up as people grapple with the reality of an uncertain future. In hospitals, medical practitioners have had to treat frightened people facing a disease that is incurable, elusive and mercurial. They have to show empathy to their patients. At the same time, they also have to take care of their own mental and emotional well-being to ensure they don't burn out. They have to show empathy to themselves. Empathy, you could say, is the glue that holds everything and everyone in this precarious situation together. COVID-19 has accelerated this understanding and amplified its importance. But can empathy be taught? And if so, how is it being imparted to our doctors and medical staff? Is enough emphasis being placed on this kind of training? And how do we ensure our medical staff are also being taken care of? With me today to discuss these issues are two special guests. My first guest is Dr. Mohan Tiru, a senior consultant, emergency physician, and the chairman of the residency program for emergency medicine. Recently, he was in charge of the COVID-19 Community Isolation Facility at Singapore Expo. Hi, Mohan. Hi. And my second guest is Dr. Melina Supaya, Deputy Director of Clinical Education at the National University Health System, where she teaches empathy and compassion to healthcare professionals. Melina has also volunteered at migrant worker dormitories affected by COVID-19. Hi, Melina. Morning, Sochin. I want to talk first about the COVID-19 experience, which both of you have gone through. I just want to know, I mean, it's basically disrupted everybody's lives. But how has it disrupted your work as doctors? Has it led to a deeper understanding or appreciation of any aspect of your profession? I think society has changed somewhat during the COVID experience. I mean, right at the very start, we would see people being very kiasu, kiasi about, about the whole virus response. My nurses, especially the foreign medical nurses, were told by the landlords to leave, go and find their own accommodation mm-hmm. because they were working in a hospital, a high-risk right. facility. Mm. We would hear stories of taxi drivers refusing rights to healthcare workers. Mm. But as the pandemic progressed, we saw a lot of change in people's attitude, people becoming more empathetic towards the needs of others Mm. rather than the needs of themselves. Mm. A few years ago, we had this barrier between us and the migrant workers. We do not want them to be living in our neighbourhoods, but we want them to build our houses kind of thing. Being in a COVID facility for migrant workers, we listen to their problems, Mm -hmm. their living conditions. And then again, we're able to reflect on this. As we make decisions, we change the way in which we treated them, Mm -hmm. both in their physical settings, their dormitories. We learn how to accommodate them in large community care facilities in a humane way. They had air conditioning, they had Mm Wi-Fi, they had good food from, in fact, from RWS. (laughs) We became very involved Mm. in their emotional state as well as their physical well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think that gave us great insight into not only people in the medical setting, but also as a society in general. We are now a bit in fact, a lot more tolerant, number one, but also understanding and caring as a Mm. society. So in many ways, it sort of brought Singaporeans together because we're all in it together, right? I'd just like to add a further point. 
on the negative side, there's always two sides mm. to the coin. <laughs> I think because of the COVID restrictions and social distancing measures, we now talk to our patients with N95 masks mm. on in PPE. And if you try talking to somebody for very long, in a, let alone a surgical mask, let alone N95 mask, yeah. you get breathless. Right. You know, so verbal communication now becomes less. Mm. And you know, the first thing about empathy is actually listening to your patient, letting the patient talk. The other thing is seeing your patient as well, you know, not being able to see you face to face physically. I lose some of that emotional connection that I have with people. And that's actually a wired neuroscience response in our brain. Our eyes are connected to our limbic system, to the frontal system. Nonverbal cues are also right. very important right. as well. Melina, you mentioned, right, when you were working in the foreign worker dormitories during COVID-19, trying to show your empathy when you're all masked up in a big suit. So what did you do? There were several areas where we felt we could have improved. We were speaking them across a mask, mm. full PPE, sometimes spectacles, goggles, face shields. So there were so many layers. It mm. was hard to get that connection sometimes. Mm -hmm. Again, language skills. Mm. I didn't speak a lot of the languages that they were comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So I was mainly using English or very simple English mm -hmm. and then other simple phrases in a foreign language that I thought may have been helpful. Mm -hmm. But as Mohan says, listening to is very important. Mm -hmm. And when they heard it, when they're being tested, either swabbing or having their blood drawn, it's difficult because it's a very quick mm -hmm. and very efficient system mm -hmm. and there's not much time to listen. Mohan said listening is very important and Sometimes I heard, but I don't think I was actually able to listen to them properly. Mm. And again, empathy is a very cognitive ability to connect, to understand. Sometimes I feel we need to go one step further, and that is compassion, mm. acting on what we've been able to understand or heard or gathered from mm -hmm. their experience. If we push empathy to the next step of compassion, mm -hmm. we then start to care for others and not just yeah. look after our own well-being. And that's what I'd like to see in our society. Mm. And you mentioned this moment you were there, you were trying to smile with your eyes, right? They couldn't see your smile because your mouth was basically covered by well, a Well, my teeth are a little bit crooked, <laughs> so that smile could be improved yeah. upon. But yes. Yeah, so it's little things like that as well, which matter, I think, to the patient who's quite terrified, really. And I know a friend whose daughter was working as a healthcare practitioner in California with COVID-19 patients. She was similarly suited up. And how she tried to convey some compassion and empathy was by putting a plastic sunflower on her head somehow. Oh, so I, it was, I, I must try that as yeah. well. So it, it just brought some laughter to the patients and it sort of lightened the situation a little bit. So, okay, I'd like to just take this discussion into the more granular level and talk about just showing empathy to patients in general. How does one monitor or develop this in healthcare practitioners? Like Mohan, you talk about evaluating doctors on the floor, right? You must have lots of war stories, especially from your days at, uh, when you were heading emergency medicine at Changi General Hospital. Yes, there will be times that we see a lot of cases where patients are on the verge of dying, very bad traumas, mm -hmm. and we we get emotionally involved. But we sometimes need to desensitize ourselves mm -hmm. to get the job working. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a balance, mm. you know, not too much, not too little. Others, every time we give an injection to a child, we'll be crying as well. <laughs> you know, that, that's not what we want. 
But we don't want to go to the other extreme, mm. devoid of total care and concern. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I learned early on is that when our residents come to us and we talk to them about empathy, only 10% of them actually believe that empathy could be taught or could be improved upon. So that made mm. me feel very pessimistic. Right. <laughs> so that, that set about a crusade to get this into their curriculum as part of their residency training to basically get them rewired again in this neuroscience. Doctors, as you know, we are very scientifically based. We don't want to spend time talking about, oh, did you walk here today? You know, <laughs> the, the sun is shining. The Just cure the disease. You know, Just be yeah, to cure mean, the we disease. Get <laughs> out of here as fast as you can, the kind of thing, you know. So we got to step back and tell them what's in it for them. Mm. Now, there's now quite a lot of literature that shows well-being of patients Outcomes of patients are positively affected by mm. doctors who are more empathetic. Mm. And these can be measured now by different scales. The Jefferson scale is one of them. And these are validated scores. And if you look at something very common, for the, even for the GP, for example, something as simple as the influenza. Mm. If a GP has higher scores, patients get better faster. And this is mm. also something which is seen in their immune response, their interleukin levels are higher, mm. some of the other immune markers are also higher. So this, there's a scientific basis. And if the doctor still doesn't believe that, it mm. is now shown that doctors who are more empathetic, more caring, show more care and concern, mm. have better medical legal outcomes. They right. get sued less, they get complaints <laughs> less. And I'm sure every doctor in clinical practice wants that. Nobody wants to get sued, isn't it? Sure. So I think there's two very good reasons for doctors to want to buy into this. Now, how do we do it? Doctors don't want to go into a room and everybody yeah. do a group hub kumbaya session. <laughs> no, that's not what we want to do. They want to know why, how. So I think you need to explain to them the neuroscience behind it. Mm. And the scientific basis that's also shown that when doctors are more caring and concerned about the patients, when they have more empathy, mm-hmm. oxytocin level actually goes up higher. And what is oxytocin? Oxytocin is the hormone that's released when somebody gives birth and also helps that mother-child bonding. Mm. There's now evidence to show that that's the chemical that actually makes people a bit more empathetic. Right. So does that mean as a patient, if I go to a doctor who's empathetic, my chances of recovery or getting better are actually higher? Yeah. And also from a more pragmatic approach, other than from the clinical basis, who are you likely to be more compliant to? A right. doctor that you cannot relate with or a doctor that you can relate with? I'm, I'm more likely to finish my course of antibiotics, take my diabetic medication, take mm-hmm. my chronic medicine. If a doctor is able to connect with me, understands my problems, mm-hmm. able to adjust my medication according to my values, my concerns, mm-hmm. my lifestyle, mm-hmm. who understands me. Right. Listen to me rather than a disease, right? Exactly, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, Marlena, you did a study on first-year medical students, right, essentially junior doctors, and you found that their personal assessment of their empathy levels was different from patients' assessments. That was using the Jefferson scale Mm. that Mohan just described. Mm -hmm. It's one of the sort of gold standards for it. They were self-assessing and harder on themselves, a little harsher than how the patients had assessed them. Okay. And probably their peers as well, because they put themselves to higher standards. So they thought they were less empathetic yes. than they really were. Yes. Oh, okay, so that's positive in a yes. sense. Yes, in a way which pushes them perhaps to try and be more empathetic, mm. right? If they're reading the scores and that resonates with them, 
medical students, say in a five-year course, mm -hmm. they start their clinical years as of year three, where they are exposed to patients in the hospital, in wards, in clinics. And that's when they found that their empathy levels had declined. And rather than, say, Mr. Wong, 68, right. previously a carpenter, mm. recently lost his wife, it then becomes the diabetic ulcer in mm. bed 39. So in the work that I do, a lot of teaching goes through what we call the medical humanities. Mm -hmm. We use other artifacts or devices like film, poetry, mm. drama, acting, to bring that out in them because... Mm. It's hard when it's a very clinical situation. Yeah. Mohan, you mentioned you use teaching videos, right, for your staff. So one of the things I found that is most helpful is actually watching yourself. I was actually making a teaching video on how to do suturing in a three-year-old. And um, this was uh, in the early days where we used to give procedural sedation. And we were not, we didn't want to give too much to make the baby too sedated because mm. we worried about the side effects. Of, mm. So we used to give baby, you know, minimum amount of sedation. So they were awake, but not exactly there, you know. And as I was editing the video and playing it back, I looked and saw, you know, everybody was very focused on the procedure, on the vital signs monitor. And the kid was clearly uncomfortable getting the sutures done, which I was doing. If I was able to recognize this in myself, that how I need to focus more on the patient rather than the procedure, mm. I'm sure the others would. And so this is something I do routinely for some of the trainees. We get them to do simple consultations and see, and focus not on the, I mean, one of the worst things now is the computer monitor in front of a, in the clinic. Mm. Everybody's focused on the, <laughs> yeah. on, on the monitor and the keyboard right. and they hardly look at their patients. That's so true. That's something, yeah. you know, and it is something you, sh you can only appreciate it if you see it yourself doing it. So you learn a tremendous amount of your interaction with patients rather than your interaction with a disease. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the tools I use right. in this current day and age. Right. And you also found that Palliative care yes. practitioners have the most empathy. Yes. Right? I mean, by nature of their training, palliative care and psychiatrists, I mean, they are trained to discuss with the patients difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. They have to bring in the patient's goals, values, preferences. And that's the conversation they have. Mm -hmm. You know, conversation is not a one-way. Doctors tell the patients and patients does. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a shared decision making mm. thing between the patient and the doctor. Yeah. That conversation cannot happen if you don't understand what the patient needs. So mm. palliative care by nature, because these are concerns about taking chemotherapy that may keep you alive for a few weeks more, but what quality of life will you have? Can we offer you a different treatment which keeps you comfortable, but you may not live two or three weeks extra? Mm. Do you want to live two or three weeks extra because you want to attend your son or daughter's wedding? Right. So these are difficult conversations, but again, that's where the training mm. needs to be done. Mm. In a landmark study, it is found that patients with metastatic cancer, stage 4 cancer, who receive palliative care at the start of the diagnosis of terminal cancer, actually live longer. Mm. They require less opioids or pain medication, mm. and they have a better quality of life. Right. Gosh. So why not offer it to the mainstream population? You know, mm. It's a no-brainer. Right. Yeah. Okay, so obviously on-the-ground training is important, but do we need to start even earlier, like in medical school? Is empathy being taught? How is it being taught? Has it increased in importance as a subject over the years? 
it's not easy to assess again and everything is grade-centric or exam-centric. It's also part of the MMI, multiple mini-interviews, when they come in for admissions to medical school. So there are efforts being done and they've been going ongoing for some time to mm. assess the empathy levels, but being extremely brilliant. A lot of us learn the stuff off by heart and we know what to say, <laughs> when to say it at the right time. And they kind of game the system. Yeah, but I think through research as well, there's a lot of evidence that you have to fake it till you make it. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with pretending, mm -hmm. acting, but mm. we have to make it comfortable where we're all in the learning mode, we're all improving. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think... My older daughter is applying to medical school, but she's learned how to game the MMI <laughs> interviews to the T. Yay! So I'm sure she has no problem showing she has empathy, but right. whether she's actually empathetic or not, that's something else. Mm. There's a wonderful researcher called Brene Brown, and she's talked about vulnerability as yep. well. To be empathetic and compassionate as well, you need to be vulnerable. And quite often in the medical field, Strength, solidity, those are the words that we associate with healthcare. Mm. Vulnerability, uncertainty, not knowing or doubting mm -hmm. is seen as a weakness. Mm -hmm. But the earlier we are aware mm -hmm. of what we don't know, mm -hmm. knowing what we don't see or may not see, mm -hmm. it makes us better clinicians because we're less likely to make sort of errors sure. with our biases that we may not be able mm -hmm. to see. So that awareness is very important. Right. So empathy obviously has become more important in the education system, right, for training doctors, right, Mohan? How much, what percentage was it given previously and now? Well, I'm not that much involved in undergraduate mm. education, but my, my involvement is actually mostly in postgraduate. Mm. So that's becoming one of the key portfolios that our residents have to demonstrate before they become a specialist, before they get a specialist certificate. Mm. Now, they actually have to get feedback from patients mm. and submit that as part of their formative assessment as they mm. move through the final years. Mm -hmm. There's one of the three criteria before they're allowed to give a certificate to practice as a specialist. So they have to demonstrate this as part of their curriculum to their faculty mm. In real time, this is not in simulated situations. Being a hospital administrator in my other portfolio, we are now looking at incorporating some of these scores, mm -hmm. patient satisfaction scores, patient experience scores, in how we remunerate our clinicians oh. as well. Wow, okay, that will make them sit up and pay yeah, attention. So <laughs> it will actually affect them in their pockets if mm. they actually you don't have that attribute. This has already started in many countries overseas. Mm. I think we are a bit behind, mm. but it's something definitely is on the cards that will be affected in the not-too-distant wow. future. Okay. So I think it's not only about teaching, but also maintaining that competency as we go along. Right. So talking about the teaching aspect still and the importance of empathy, I, I think recently there's been a lot of talk about fusing the arts with the sciences. So like, for example, a National University of Singapore plans to fuse its arts and social sciences and science faculties to form a College of Humanities and Sciences. Essentially, what this means, obviously, is that students will be taking modules in different disciplines across the humanities, social sciences, science and mathematics. And yet, I think some people feel that this would be impractical for specialised courses such as medicine or law architecture and nursing, which have fixed 
curricula and programs. Is that correct? And, and what is your take? Multidisciplinarity is very important. Mm. We like to put people in boxes. Yep. And then we keep them in boxes mm. and say we advocate growth, development, but actually it's not happening because we do that. You're right in saying, Sochin, that the curricula is very, very dense. So mm. there's very little leeway to add on stuff. Mm. And if you do add on, what do you remove, right? right? If it's right. an essential part of what they need to know to graduate, then it's doing them a disservice. Mm. So I think the good thing is to be in faculties where people can mix and can speak to one another. Like the ancient Greeks had the fora where they would all come in their togas and speak to one another. Empathy is actually perceiving and understanding what the other person is feeling or thinks. Mm -hmm. So to convey that in a multidisciplinary environment mm -hmm. for various faculties, in that case, it has to be mandated from top down, the right. provost, the president. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's not done by the curricula, it's not done by the school, mm -hmm. empathy requires a huge component of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So now with all the technical and digital means that we have, we can continue learning at all times right. and being curious. Okay, so we've talked about medical staff showing empathy to patients, right? So I want to flip the conversation around now. What about medical staff showing empathy to themselves? Because burnout is also a very real problem, right? Wellness is becoming a hot topic yeah. in the medical field mm. throughout the world. One of the highest rates is in emergency medicine. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. It's well recognized that mm -hmm. they have the highest burnout, suicide rates mm -hmm. overseas. And there is a relation between the two. In fact, again, there's scientific basis to show that people who have less empathy have higher burnout rates. Mm. People who are more empathetic communicate better. And burnout, I like to think of it in three dimensions. First is the personal dimension, where they have problems at home, finances. Then there's problems at work, mm. which are admin-related. You know, mm. you've got to do all this ton of paperwork, go through IT systems, which are so complicated these days, come and do podcasts before you go to work. <laughs> and then there's the third bit, the patient problem bit, your interaction with patients. Mm. Healthcare workers that are more empathetic are more likely to communicate their problems with other people. And this mm. is not just for doctors, it's for any kind of clinician. Right. It grows across the board. Now, in Singapore, I think it's like a cosmopolitan world. United Nations, when you go to any hospital, mm. you see healthcare workers coming from all sides of the world working in Singapore. They may look like us, Chinese, Indian, but they've come from very different societies to mm. work here. Mm -hmm. When they come here, they bring a lot of cultural differences. They bring a lot of problems. They have been laid off from work in other areas. Mm. They have adaptation problems a lot of the time. And many times, we don't understand a lot of these issues. Minya culpa for me, because as when I first became head of department in Changi General Hospitals, a &E, it was the busiest emergency department in Singapore. There's a lot of stresses placed on me. Mm -hmm. And I was a type A personality. I want everything done yesterday. Mm. If I'm traveling at 100 kilometers per hour, somebody else is traveling at 50 kilometers per hour, mm. I'll get really upset with that. Mm. And that would show... But I did not understand the pressures on that person, especially if it's a junior person. And it's the higher I, I went up in leadership, sometimes the slower you have to become to bring yourself to the level of the others 
who are trying to cope as best as they can. Because mm. if you try to bring them to your pace mm. in too short a period of time without time to adapt, mm. that's going to be burnout. Mm. Plus, plus, plus. They will move out and they will... Firstly, they will not perform yeah. in the job to the best of their ability. It's a law of diminishing returns. Mm. After that, they will move to somewhere else. Right. And you cannot afford to lose valuable stuff this way. Yeah. You told me you shouted at somebody. Yeah. So, I mean... <laughs> This is a young adult who had ongoing fits and whose fits could not be controlled. So mm. I ordered a drug called phenytoin, which unfortunately has got bad side effects. If you give it too quickly, it can cause your blood pressure to plunge and your heart to stop. I mean, we don't want to cure the fits, but kill the patient, yeah, right? So no. <laughs> that's not the idea. So the nurse, a very, a, quite a senior nurse, she gave the drug a bit too quickly to my liking. And yes, the fits were stopped, but and no adverse outcomes, thankfully. But I was really upset and I shouted at the nurse. And immediately, as a bolt of lightning somewhere, struck me and said, this is not what your parents brought you up to do. I mean, that was my immediate reflection. Right. And at the next department meeting, I, I mean, as the head of department, I apologized for my behaviour because mm. I do not want everybody to behave in the same way right. and treat people yeah. that way. Right, so you set a positive example. You apologise to her. Yeah, right. so I think you use, a, public, neg yeah, right? you use a negative scenario yeah. and turn it positive. It can have, I right. mean, showing your weakness to others, that can be a sign of strength as right. well. Right, you know? right. So that goes back to your point, Melina, about the importance of being vulnerable, right? You mentioned that it's not a terrible thing. And I think you've cited to me previously that you admire of uh, Helen Rees, a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. Helen is a very big name in the teaching of empathy for students as well as residents. And uh, she says that you have to actually be very aware, first of all. Mm. Otherwise, like he immediately was stuck, struck by mm. lightning when saying, <laughs> my parents. So it's good to have that, yeah. you know, voice of a parent of mm. inner voice that says don't be a jerk mm. apologize and mm. sometimes a lot can be repaired harm can be repaired with a simple apology it may seem simple it's very hard to do yeah. when we're in a stage of rage or anger mm. but uh, stepping to that same level saying sorry mm. is so salutary people mm -hmm. feel a lot better mm -hmm. and sometimes even saying sorry for someone else's mistake or an error that wasn't committed by us and if it helps make the third party feel a lot better mm -hmm. why not do it it's how we said right. if it's pithy and fake and done in a callous way mm -hmm. okay tick box done mm -hmm. yeah the receiver knows it yeah. don't do that yeah, yeah. so it's mm -hmm. got to be authentic and you got to start working on yourself right so be kind to yourself and to others and I guess that kind of emanates and you promote a culture of empathy all throughout, right? Kindness to oneself is not easy. And we do a lot of training in mindfulness, mm -hmm. self-compassion. Mm -hmm. So in the medical field, that has only come in maybe in the last 15, 20 years. It's mm -hmm. seen as a very wooly thing. Yeah. Having trained in it, we use it and... People who have breakdowns at work and are in a very distressed situation, mm -hmm. it goes beyond counselling. It actually teaches them mm. to help themselves. Yeah. So there's resilience. We sit on committees for well-being, resilience. Mm -hmm. I represent together with colleagues at the hospital, at the Ministry of Health mm -hmm. to promote this. Yeah. It's not 
going to happen in the next year or two. It's a long process. Mm. And we that culture change mm. where if we care for ourselves, we'll better be able to care for others. Right. And as Mohan says, litigation rates go down. Yeah. People do not get so disenchanted that they leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. So patient experience scores are one thing, but the employee engagement surveys are another one where we look at how engaged people are in hospitals. Right. If they're coming to work and just being present, mm. instead of absenteeism, we see something called presenteeism, mm. where they're there but not totally there. And again, mm. that disengagement, right. the patient feels it, the families feel it, and we end up giving lesser care, care yeah. that is of a lower quality because we're not full ourselves and mm. being able to give. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, I think this has been a fabulous discussion. I just want to ask one last question of both of you. Tell me what you're doing to be more empathetic to your patients and to yourselves, and what are some quick tips you could share? What I do personally when I'm on clinical shift on the floor, when I'm seeing patients, I don't focus on anything else. And that gives me the time Mm. to be with my patient 100%. Mm. And that's what I've learned that I need to do that mm-hmm. to give my 100% to the patient, mm-hmm. both from the clinical point of view, right. the psychological point of view, and from the social point of view, which mm. is now becoming the important thing. Mm. You mentioned earlier about arts and sciences mixing. I think tertiary education is a bit too late in doing that. Mm. We've seen that in JC curriculum. We've seen that in the O-level curriculum long time ago. Mm. It was in JC in secondary school. When mm. you went to science, it was the end of Arts, that's what you call, but now we call it humanities for a better reason mm. because mm-hmm. it's human relationships with others. That's right. And I see that benefit in my kids because they now have to do humanities and their scores have to include humanities scores in mm. their A levels and their O levels. Mm-hmm. In humanities, the teaching is interrelational, they do a lot of project work, they mm-hmm. go out, interact more with each other mm. rather than the science where you. You can ace it, you know, you can ace maths and sciences by just doing 10-year series. You don't even have to go to school, I can tell you that. Again, that's the benefit, I think, that humanities bring to medicine. And that's Mm. why, for me, to give that human relationship, I need time to be a patient. Because a patient comes in Mm. nowadays, instead of going straight to the history and physical examination, comment about, auntie, even when I ask them, how old are you? I always tell them they're 10 years younger. You look 10 years younger. It breaks the ice and creates a yeah. little bit of... Because you're seeing them as a person, exactly. right? You know, yeah. Do you go marketing? Do you fall in the market? What were you buying in the market? Price mm-hmm. of fish very high. That's yeah, right. Today. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I said, I went to that market yesterday and which stall do you like to go to? I mean, yeah. once you break that ice, mm. it mm. opens up a whole new world. Patients tell you stories which are a hidden agenda, which yeah. is what they really come to the hospital yep. for. Yep. They bring up why they cannot go home because mm. there's no one to care for them at home or they're taking, taking care of another invalid person at home. Mm. These are all mm. things that need to be considered. Right. And I think only the arts can teach you how to have that conversation right. and communication with that patient. Right. Melina, what are you doing to be more empathetic? Well, <laughs> now, now at my old age already <laughs> as I progress, I realise more and more that the three Ds, disease, Disability and death mm. are inevitable, right? And suffering and pain is all part of life. And being human is all about mm. that. The unpleasantness of certain situations that you've had to face. Mm-hmm. So I think practicing empathy is one thing. And like Mohan, we transmit it to the next generation, either yeah. to our trainees or mm. our students, if it can be perpetuated. 
through our teachings, through our role modeling for mm-hmm. others to follow. I think that's very valuable right. already. Fantastic. That's amazing. And I'd like to end by quoting an excerpt from the Hippocratic Oath, which I found really quite resonant and quite relevant to our discussion today. And this excerpt is, I will remember that there's art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. And with that, I'd like to thank both of you, Melina and Mohan, for being on the program and for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this beautiful, empathetic moment together. (laughs) You're most welcome. (laughs) And thank you, everyone, for listening to On Diversity. See you on our next episode. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Swipe on the cover art to see the show notes for more info on this episode or visit us on our website, ipscommons.sg. Do subscribe to be notified when we have a new episode and if you like what you heard, tell a friend or give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us. I'm your host, Ong So Chin, reminding you to always keep your body healthy and your mind open. Goodbye.